Dr. Amishi Jha is a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. She received her PhD from University of California, Davis, and postdoctoral training at Brain Imaging and Analysis Center at Duke University. And today we're going to talk about her latest must-read book titled Peak Mind. Find your focus, own your attention, invest 12 minutes a day. Amishi, welcome. It's great to be here. Great to have you. I loved your book, Peak Mind. I think we all want a peak mind, especially me. And I, I love the book and I, I thought I was very impressed of, with your opening. You opened with a very strong statement where you said, quote, you are missing 50% of your life and you're not alone. Everyone is. So that's a, that's a, that's a powerful opener. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. And it's, yeah, startling. Get your attention. Um, so this number 50%, it comes from now an entire body of literature that's interested in this topic of mind wandering and mind wandering is having, it's a very sort of the specific technical description is having off-task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity. So one of the first studies that was done on this actually gave people, re-enrolled people into the study and thousands of people and said, please allow us access to your cell phone. Any time of day, you know, when you're typically awake, we're going to ping you and ask you a couple questions. The first will be, what are you doing right now? Sort of a category of things, reading, at work, whatever. Where is your attention right now? Meaning, is it on the thing you're trying to do or somewhere else? And what is your mood? And massing all this data and then many studies since then, what they found is that half the time people were not paying attention to the task at hand. This ends up being so robust that you can't really get people out of this. If you motivate them by trying to pay them or incentivize them in some other way, they still mind wander. And there are consequences to that. In fact, one of the big consequences was the subsequent mood it produced. And the title of the paper, that first one I was telling you about, is called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. So it's not just that we mind wander a lot. That in and of itself is problematic, or at least a wake-up call. It's also that the consequences for that mind wandering end up showing up in our mood and actually in our performance as well. On the opposite, is, is the opposite of mind wandering attention, which you go very deep in the book about and like is that is mind wandering on one of the other no. what's the opposite of the spectrum yeah the opposite i would say is mindfulness and we can definitely unpack that but because mind wandering is still about attention it's just that your attention has been hijacked away from the task at hand and directed toward things that are not relevant for what you're trying trying to accomplish they could still be interesting things right but they're just not paying attention to what is in front of you and you need to do so then let's talk about mindfulness, how you define mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. That's actually how I came to study mindfulness in my lab. I'm a neuroscientist, I'm a researcher, and my, the topic of my expertise is attention. So the whole time in grad school, postdoc years, early years of having my own lab, that's what I studied, how to pay attention, what's the brain systems that support it. And we kept having this sort of troubling set of findings over and over again, which is that attention is extremely powerful but also quite vulnerable. And the kinds of things that was vulnerable to were very predictable. So 
threatening circumstances, poor mood, stressful situations. And unfortunately, this is what makes up many of the moments of our life. When those moments occur, our attention tends to become depleted and degraded. And so I was particularly interested in figuring out ways we might protect against this. How could we train the brain to not have this happen? And we tried so many different things. And we landed upon mindfulness training as the solution that was the most reliably beneficial. And I never thought in a million years I'd be studying mindfulness. I mean, I was actually sort of, as an Indian woman, grew up with parents that meditated and it was sort of part of the cultural norms to, to do these practices. But I always kind of rejected it at some level because I was a hard-nosed Western-trained scientist and this is not, you know, this is not serious. So when we came to this kind of exploration, I, and I, frankly, I can tell you, I came to it personally because I needed something to pay attention to my own life and protect against my own wa mind wandering. Mindfulness ended up being very helpful for me. So just to go back to your question about how is it the opposite of mind wandering? Well, whereas mind wandering is about not having your attention in the here and the now. You're either rewinding the mind to events that have already happened unproductively for the most part, ruminating, reliving experiences that are not happening in this moment, or you're fast forwarding the mind to catastrophes of your own making, right? You're worrying, all these scenarios can come up, but they haven't happened and they may never happen. What you're doing is shifting attention to the past or the future. And it has, it has de almost devastating in some cases, consequences for your performance and your mood. So the solution to that would be, okay, let's keep attention in the present, right? So we're not rewinding or fast forwarding. Let's keep the button on play. And let's keep the button on play in a way that allows us to get the most data of what's happening right now. That goes to this description I have of mindfulness, paying attention to present moment experience without elaboration or reactivity. And one of the things that we've been studying in my lab for the last 15 years or so is how to train for that. Mindfulness can mean a lot of different things to people. And so I think it'd be helpful, maybe walk us through a real world example of, let's say you get a upsetting text message. What's a real world example of how a mindfulness based approach would, would help you manage your attention, your level of anxiety, your, your mood and so forth after receiving this text message that is quite upsetting. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting example because it's such an acute, potent and it happens all the time. Event, and it happens a lot to all of us. So I guess the first question is like, when is this happening? Let's say it's happening while you're trying to get something done. So let's say you have a deadline and you get this upsetting message and the upsetting message has nothing to do. It's a personal thing. The deadline is for some work-related thing. And now you're in this real conflict situation where you need to devote your mind to the task at hand, get meeting that deadline, getting the work done. But you have this pull on your attention toward that negative probably self-related content. Somebody's either criticizing you or there's a problem or somebody that you hear about is in jeopardy. Troubling stuff is happening. The first thing to, to do is to, and by the way, mindfulness is not a quick fix. And all of these, all the things I'm about to say next come through cultivating training for your mind that allows you to do this and pay attention differently. So if this happens and you don't succeed at doing it in the mindful way, it's not a failure. It's just part of the learning process. But one thing to do that maybe even counterintuitive if you, if you take a mindfulness-based approach is to first acknowledge and allow the emotional reaction that 
you had to receiving the text message. So you did get pulled away from the work that you were doing, probably at your computer, by your phone, let's say that the text message appeared on. So your attention was pulled away and now you've received this content and the mood you have in that moment is very stressed out or negative in some way. Oftentimes what we, the typical response may be, push it away, suppress it, ignore it, stomp it down so you can get back to work. Like I'm not letting that thing interfere. I'm gonna get over it and get back to it. And you think you're being successful because you're like, I pushed it out of my mind, here I go. For anybody that's ever tried to do that, we realize that's pretty much a failed strategy because soon enough, potentially white space in your thought process, you are going to have that content bubble up again, potentially over and over and over again. And every time it appears, you're going to squash it down over and over again. So the mindfulness-based orientation toward the experience would be first really allow yourself to feel the emotions. So accept and allow. And then think of it as sort of like with there with you, but like you would have a friend or maybe a, a child in the room with you when you're trying to get something done. They're there with you. You hold them in this space, but they know and you know that right now your attention needs to go to what you're doing right now. You're not ignoring it, but you're also not engaging with it. You're not denying it, but you're also not trying to reframe it. So anything that I would say that you would do typically push it away, think about it in a different way, try to work with the content, try to solve the problem. That would probably not be the approach to take from a mindfulness-based perspective, especially if there is a deadline. I'm curious on a personal level and just, and and if you have advice for our listeners, what are some of the ways we can work on developing our mindfulness practice that you think are most effective, whether you're speaking personally or you have general advice, how do we strengthen our mindfulness muscles so that when that moment comes, we're prepared? Exactly. And that's really the way I think about it. It's about training our minds to respond differently because it's definitely not our default. And that's really what I've been pursuing. I've been trying to figure that out for, since I learned about mindfulness, how do we train people to do this? And not only train people to do this, because that's been a project around for literally millennia from the world's wisdom traditions. But how do we bring that wisdom and those practices to the modern day with time pressured people who are not in a monastery alone, but in the real world, dealing with text messages and tons of demands and their social media feeds, et cetera. And for a lot of the groups that we work with, which are first responders, medical and nursing professionals, military service members, Lapses of attention are consequential. They're, they're, they can be life and death. So this was essentially a very consequential project of how to do this. And what we basically were able to do is lean on the existing literature. And by the way, that was very little when I started. Like what I would, I remember telling my colleagues back in 2003 or four, this is before it was a buzzword or people knew what it was. There certainly weren't podcast conversations happening around mindfulness or not really podcasts around them either, but they thought it was career suicide. They're like, nobody cares about this topic and nobody ever will. And you're wasting your time. So there wasn't a lot out there, but what was there and what was starting to happen is that within medical clinics, people were starting to figure out. And the real pioneer in this was somebody named John Kabat-Zinn, who took essentially the Buddhist wisdom traditions practices uh, that have a suite of meditation options, suite of practices, and brought it to the medical clinic for people with chronic pain. So I could look to his program called Mindfulness-Based 
stress reduction and see what the main practices were. As soon as I started doing that, I realized, oh my goodness, these are all training attention. They're all giving the various three main brain systems of attention a workout. And what we've done is taken that sort of, that is sort of the home base and trying to see if we could go from the eight hour, 24, sorry, eight week, 24 plus hour program that is mindfulness-based stress reduction, 45 minutes a day of daily practice, all beneficial. Data suggests that it's working. Nobody in a time pressure context was willing to take that on. So our journey has been, let's take the, let's figure out which practices are necessary. Let's figure out how much they have to do every day and how can we scale this up so that no matter whether you're a firefighter or soldier or teacher, you might be able to have access to this. Or a football player. Which or a football you, player. You, you did this, you did this fascinating study. I was yes. reading it. I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Could you talk about the study you did with the University of Miami football team? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And that really was the, the spirit behind it was we were asking two really important questions. The first one was, how does mindfulness compare to something else? You know, when you think about elite athletes, there are many things in the performance psychology realm that are offered to help elite athletes perform well. And the broad field might be called performance psychology so that people are using techniques like visioning, positive self-talk, goal setting, relaxation. Relaxation is a very prominent one within performance psychology. And what I knew is that those are powerful approaches to performance, but they're also very attentionally demanding. You need this resource of attention to be able to reframe, relax, do the self-talk. And so the question I was asking was, let's put mindfulness. One of the questions was, let's put mindfulness and relaxation head to head and see which one fares better. And let's do this in the context of one of, our, one of the high stress periods that elite athletes face, especially division one football players, which is this preseason intensive camp where they're still in school, they're, they're doing summer session and they're working out many, many hours every day in the Miami heat. And what we predicted was that it's gonna be tough on them doing this for weeks on end. And at the end of that camp, they have to go and basically perform to figure out what they're gonna, what they're, what they're, season playing opportunities are going to look like. So it's consequential what happens next. What we knew from our work with, with pre-deployment soldiers was that when you put somebody, and many other groups, by the way, when you put individuals through high stress periods for multiple weeks, their attention is going to get worse. Their mind wandering is going to go up. Their mood is going to get worse. And probably their performance will start to tank. And then think about for pre-deployment soldiers, oh, by the way, now you're going to go get deployed into a war zone. And for these football players, we wanted to see if that would happen. Would it be the case that this intensive, demanding preseason training camp or preseason training period, would it deplete them? And if so, now they've got to be tested on their prowess to be eligible to play. So that was the window we chose to, to study, mindfulness versus relaxation. We gave both. We, gave, we took the football team. We divided them in half. Half of them got relaxation. Half of them got mindfulness. But we met with them about 45 minutes once a week. And we gave them these little MP3 players, iPods, iPod shuffles, which don't even exist anymore, where we put practices on them that were 12 minutes long. And we said, every day you can use this to guide practice. 
And we even showed up during their conditioning weight training sessions. And, and after they were done doing that, they would actually stick their iPod shovel in, in their, the headphones in their ears and do the practices. Now, they didn't know who was in what group. They didn't know what the other people were hearing. Half of them were hearing relaxation, half of them were hearing mindfulness. And we tested them on their attention and their mood and well-being, et cetera. At the beginning of the four-week interval, we trained them for four weeks, then we trusted them again. So that's sort of the setup for what we set out to do. And what do we find? Yeah. <laughs> what we found was really interesting. First of all, 12 minutes was pretty pretty good amount of time. Most of them were willing to engage in it, not every single day. Some did a lot more of those daily practices, but it wasn't 45 minutes a day as we were talking about a moment ago. It was a doable range. And we found both programs were helpful for their well-being, for their mood, their stress levels. So absolutely, performance psychology, this entire enterprise offered to elite athletes, it's a good way to go. But only the mindfulness training group protected their attention. Everybody's attention got worse. Those in the mindfulness group stayed stable over time. They did not decline. And those that did five days a week or more, some of them actually improved in their attention, even though the group as a whole was declining. Fascinating. It, it, it's also, I, I also find it interesting. It's a generalization, but I'll, I'll still do it. I, I think football is a sport that it, it, you, it's built on aggression. In some ways you practice violence. And I think that many, there's a history, not every football player, but th there have been a number of football players who struggle off the field with managing aggression. And I think mindfulness is a technique. One, it's interesting because it helps performance on the field, but I think it also can help manage. The same thing goes for soldiers. People who are in that constant fight or flight helps them manage off the field or coming home from being overseas and potentially at, at, at war, if you will. And I think it's, it's interesting. And there are a lot of studies around that too and helping manage PTSD, whether it's PTSD with a capital PTSD or a little right. <laughs> lowercase PTSD, yeah. it's an effective technique. Absolutely. And I think that is one of the reasons it becomes so valuable as a, and, and has promise because sure, we go in there wanting to improve performance and the football coach that invited us into the, do the study, that was one of his primary interests is can they actually get better? But it was kind of interesting. The day that we were supposed to launch the project, there was sort of a bad incident that had happened and it was along the lines. I mean, the details I'm not going to get into, but Essentially, some of the football players had been accused of some transgressions that were quite problematic and to the point where the entire team was quite upset, like, this is not the way we want to launch our time. And so I actually called the coach and I said, do you want us to hold off? And he said, no, Mishi, this is exactly why you're doing it. I want them to have the tools on the field and off the field. So I'm really grateful that there's an understanding that these same things, being able to Hold your goal in, goal in mind and align your performance with what you know to be the right way to behave. Hold your ethical code in mind. Manage your mood, manage your emotions. These are things that are needed to have exceptional playing ability, but also exceptional personal social responsibility and sort of life experience. I'm going to come back to attention and I couldn't help, you know, reading your book and I'm, and I'm wondering, not wandering, I'm wondering <laughs> to myself, am I good? Do, am I good at attention? And so my question to you is, how, how do we know for our listeners, how do we know if we're good as we think about attention? How do we grade ourselves? You know, the first thing is you probably don't have to grade yourself. If you're having a lot of problems with your attention, you're getting a lot of feedback from a lot of other people. 
that you're not. I mean, it could go from the, are you listening to me? From a friend or a spouse. We know when, because of the feedback that we get, that there's challenges. And the first thing to say is, when we think about our attention, just like our psychological health, the time to really think about taking action is when it affects our functioning, when we feel like we're in a crisis because of it. That's when we want to start stepping in to do things. So if things are going pretty well, that's great. The thing to remember, though, is, as I said a moment ago, for any of us, no matter how great our attention is in any moment, if we experience a protracted period of high stress and high demand, that could be the launch of a company. If you're a lawyer preparing for a case, medical students preparing for board exams, sales seasons, like the whole world is filled with high demand intervals for any profession and any livelihood. When you experience those, the data in our hands suggests your retention will decline from its normative level. So in some sense, we're all going to be vulnerable because of the nature of life. And in those circumstances, we, we will feel it. It will feel like probably something like overwhelm. The demands on me exceed what I'm capable of. And so that's the first thing to remember is that regardless of whether you're all good or not, the chances of not being all good, pretty high at some point in our lives. And this was really interesting when we were dealing with soldiers because when we looked at sort of the conventional forces, like I said, during high demand, during a high demand interval, whether it's some kind of training or pre-deployment or whatever, as a group, conventional soldiers got worse in their attention and their mood. When we looked at special forces, people that were selected because they have exceptional ability and exceptional attention over pre-deployment trainings, they did not actually decline. They stayed steady, whereas their conventional soldier counterparts declined. So they were categorically different. The selection criteria worked. Their attention was better. And the pre-deployment stress did not affect them in the same way. So the question was, what can we do to actually help both of these kinds of groups? So going back to your question, whether your steady state and your attention tends to be good and you're stable, or you tend to maybe potentially be more vulnerable to high stress and your attention goes down, the question is probably still going to be, for most of the people that are interested in a podcast like this one, how do I maximize? How do I optimize? How do I be, you know, not to use an army, army phrase, the best I can be? And the really cool thing was when we offered conventional soldiers as well as special forces mindfulness training over four weeks, and we can certainly talk about specific practices like you were asking me about, the conventional forces, when people practiced this 12 minutes a day, five days a week sort of uh, scheme, they remain stable. And for the special forces who were stable, even though they were under high demand, they got better. So everybody was uplifted by engaging in these practices. And to me, that was a real, that was really exciting because that meant that even no matter what your starting point, you had the opportunity to grow in a positive direction. So for us, non-soldiers, type A's, health conscious. I think about our audience, think about me. What, what are some of the, you know, think about practice. What, what should we all do right now? Or, or can we do if we're really interested in, in upgrading our mindfulness practice or upgrading our attention? Yeah. Well, the first thing to say that it is a practice and it is a form of cognitive training. That's why it entered my lab. And I mentioned soldiers just because they're such an acute case, but it's all of us. All of us will deal with stress, threat, and poor mood in our lives. All of us will feel the pinch of, of performance demands on us. And understanding it conceptually is a great start. It's about being present-centered. It's about getting the data from the experience. It's about non -be not being reactive. But practice is important because of the number that you started out our conversation with. 50% of the time, our attention is wandering away. 
So we're up against a lot. And let's just take one of the practices, and there are a suite of practices, and it's a very simple, and if you, you know, if you've engaged in mindfulness practice, it'll sound familiar, something called mindfulness of breathing, or I call it the, the find your flashlight practice. And what this practice asks you to do is just you can sit in a comfortable, upright, kind of dignified position, set aside some time to do this and start out with a minute, three minutes, doesn't matter. Many of your listeners may be doing this already, so I'm curious to see what they'll say when I describe the practice and what, how I see it from a cognitive perspective. And the goal of this practice, so to speak, is to pick a target for your attention and then to keep your attention focused there. So the reason I call it the find your flashlight practice is because we're going to think of our attention like a flashlight. We're going to direct it willfully towards something in the same way if we were walking on a darkened path, we could point it to something and wherever it was that the flashlight is pointed, get more info. So for this practice, we're going to sit quietly, maybe lower or close our eyes. And the target for our attention will be breath related sensations. And we will be very specific about it. So kind of checking in with what's most prominent. Maybe it's the, the, your chest or abdomen moving up and down as you take an in-breath and out-breath or the coolness of air on your nostrils, whatever it is, kind of clue into what is prominent and then really set the intention to have the flashlight of your attention be right there. And it's going to follow the flow of the breath. The really important thing to, to say here, because a lot of times when I start talking about breath and doing things with the breath, people think, oh, okay, I get this. I do yoga. It's like pranayama. I'm going to like do this deep belly breathing and I'm going to exhale longer than I inhale. All of that's great. That is absolutely not what I'm talking about right now. The main thing I'm saying is you're not doing anything to your breath. You're taking an observational stance to this miraculous thing that our bodies just do. We don't have to will them to do this. So we're just using the breath as a really hang handy anchor of things that are changing in our present moment experience that we don't have to control. We can control it, but we don't have to control it. So breath happens. You're focusing on a prominent sensation. You're keeping the flashlight of attention pointed right there. And then there's another part of the uh, instructions, which is when you notice that your mind has wandered away from breath-related sensations, gently return the flashlight back. So the power of this is that we have a target. We know what we're doing. We know what the goal is. We're also watching. We're keeping a broad, receptive stance toward what is occurring moment by moment. And we're checking in with our attention. We're finding where our flashlight actually is pointing. It's like we have every intention of wanting to keep it on the breath, but we're thinking about the email we got to write or the conversation we just had or some fantasy we have. It's everywhere but potentially on the breath. And then the moment we have that realization, ah, my mind was wandering. You know, we just gently, there's nothing big to do. We just bring it right back, point the flashlight again and, and begin again. And that is such a, like, that is a very basic mindfulness push-up. And I think if we do it over and over again, it can really help. And we know from our data, it can help strengthen um, our focus. It can reduce our mind wandering and actually even boost our mood. So you walked us through the flashlight. Can you also walk us through the floodlight and the juggler? Ooh. I love your yeah. names in the book. <laughs> you know, I want to make it accessible in a way that like, this is all stuff we should all be able to understand. These are capacities we have in our own mind. And, you know, it's interesting having just described that practice, 
the flashlight, sorry, the floodlight and the juggler were within that practice as well. So the flashlight we already described, right? This narrow beam of our focus, the quality it has is it's concentrative. Wherever we're directing those computational resources of the brain, there's more clarity, crispness, information flowing, and everything else that's not in the flashlight's focus is fuzzier and less available to us. So the flashlight has sort of what we'd call a high signal to noise ratio. There's things that are relevant and things that are not relevant. The floodlight is the exact opposite. This is the capacity of attention. And by the way, you know, most people think when they use, hear the word attention, they think of the flashlight, it's focus. But attention is not just focus. Attention developed as a bigger problem that the brain had to solve regarding allowing it to sample everything in its environment and within its own mind. So one way we pay attention is by focusing. But another way we pay attention is through this floodlight metaphor, which is paying attention in a broad and receptive stance, just like a floodlight. You know, I've got a floodlight above my garage door. What's its purpose? Well, it's just there so that anything that shows up within it, we're more privy to it. And I'm not out to hunt for the raccoon that might show up near my trash can or neighbors that might walk by. It's just available for anything that comes and goes. And another way to think about this capacity is a couple of other kind of helpful ways to think about it. Uh, you might, the next time you're driving and you might see a flashing yellow light, usually that means stay alert, keep your attention ready, but you don't know what you're looking for. Is it a strange traffic pattern or maybe there's kids playing, but you know what that means. It means be vigilant. That's the floodlight. It's almost like a scout, if you will, kind of broad watching, looking around. And the third system that you mentioned, we've got the flashlight, the floodlight. Now the juggler is yet another aspect of the way we pay attention. And the technical term for the juggler is executive functions. So executive there is, is really borrowing from the business term of an executive. The, the, the executive's job is to make sure that our goals, meaning the organization's goals and the organization's behaviors align. The executive of a company, for example, is not going in and doing every task, but they're overseeing it. And that's exactly what the juggler is doing. The juggler's making sure all the balls in the air are in the air, nothing's dropping. They're kind of checking in on all the various tasks that need to be done. So we can think of this as sort of the goal maintenance system of the mind. You know, there is something that you should be doing and what's going on with your behavior? Are you on track or not? So let's go back to the small, short practice, this find your flashlight practice I just described. We already talked about the flashlight. You're gonna direct it toward breath-related sensations. But then I talked about noticing. Noticing where your mind is, that's the floodlight. Keep it broad and receptive. So we're always checking in. Where is my mind right now? And then the third thing that I said, when you notice that your mind has wandered, gently return it. That's that taskmaster uh, executive control saying, nah, get back on task. Your goal for this period of time was to pay attention to the breath. Get back on it. Redirect your brain's resources to doing that. So in some sense, this very simple practice is like a threefer. It, it checks into all three systems of attention and it exercises them through something as little as 12 minutes of your time investment a day. You mentioned vulnerabilities and when I think of vulnerabilities to attention, I'm flashing my iPhone. Technology's here, technology isn't going anywhere. I'm curious, what does our device, our, our iPhone or whatever device we have do to our attention and what can we do to better manage it? Such a good question and such a timely question for all of us and all of our children. So 
the first thing to realize is that, yes, it's absolutely engaging your attention, but there's nothing wrong with your attention. Oftentimes people say, oh, because the modern age, you know, our attention spans are shorter. No, they're not. Evolution doesn't work at that time scale. Our attention spans are not shorter. And even though we feel like in a crisis moment, because we feel like at the mercy of this technology that's just kind of sucking in our brain's attention system, our attention is actually working absolutely fine. It's doing exactly what it should be doing. Doesn't mean it feels great, but it's doing exactly what, sh what it should be doing. So let's just go back to that flashlight that we were talking about. The way I was describing in the mindfulness practice is we're deciding where to put that flashlight and we're directing it. That's what we call voluntary attention. But that same flashlight, it's a capacity and it gets pulled by various types of stimuli. So your flashlight can get hijacked away by things like notifications, any information that's self-related, threatening, alarming, interesting, in the category of drug, sex, and rock and roll, like anything that's enticing for us, the flashlight will get pulled toward it. That's what evolutionary evolution designed for it to do. It helps with our survival in many ways. And so what, we, what ends up happening is that we end up in a battle. We've got the thing we want to do, and then we've got the pull of the technology. And, and that is why it feels so exhausting. That's why we feel like we have short attention spans, because we are at the mercy of whatever pulls us. So to answer your question, which is what we can do about it, well, the first thing is we can be aware that there's nothing wrong with my attention, but it's doing this because of the circumstances that I'm putting it through, just broadly speaking. And then even practices like the one I described, they help us do something very, very important moment by moment in our lives, which we don't do by default, which is pay attention to where our attention is. And this means, and really getting granular with that. So like the next time, you have that itch, that mental itch to pick up your phone. And this, and oftentimes we don't, we're not aware we have a mental itch to pick up the phone. We're already on Twitter. Like it's ballistic. You go get from the phone, you put in your code, you get your on the, you click on the app, you're already on it. You're already there. And then you're like, oh, wow, look at that. I'm already here. How did I even get here? What I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting is that the reason it feels so compulsive and ballistic is because we aren't there for all those intervening steps. And so paying attention in this way allows us to say, yes, I'm experiencing that pull, that urge to pick up my phone. What would, what's the benefit of doing this right now? You know, sort of engaging that executive control again to say, what is my goal right in this moment? Oh, you know what? I want to check Twitter because I want to see who won the Emmy for blah, blah, blah. You could have some goal and say, okay, I'm going to do it. And once I get that goal satisfied, I'm going to put the phone down. So now all of a sudden we are engaging in it with much more purposeful goal-related intention, then you probably wouldn't feel as bad either. If you can remember that after you check one of the Grammys or Emmys, don't keep scrolling. Is that the rule you've set for yourself and that we should follow is what, ask yourself the question, what's the goal? If you have a goal, go to the phone, accomplish the goal, leave the phone. And when you ask yourself, what's the goal? And there is no goal. Don't pick up the phone. I would say it's more than what's the goal is a good one. But where's my attention right now is another one. Like, where is it? Is it because I'm feeling lonely and I want to connect? Is it because I'm feeling bored and I want to just have something interesting to look at? Like, get deeper with regard to the journey within. Of what is the attention system calling you out to do? You know, I'll just say this. Um, these are all strategies that 
that we can cultivate to have more and more control. Because frankly, the notion of breaking up with your phone is a falsehood. We can't do that. At this moment in time, technology is like air. We need it to survive. But what I'm saying is that part of our approach can be to be more in an ownership orientation toward our attention. And then frankly, the second thing is to demand that technology makers are more responsible in their conduct. Very topical is uh, Facebook's been on the cover of the Wall Street Journal every day this week. <laughs> exactly. So you're a parent, I'm a parent, your kids are much older than mine. I'm curious if you have any advice to parents of all ages and how they should attempt, depending on attempt is, is a word I'll probably use for, for, for parents of children who are older versus mine or younger, where we can more or less control how they interact with their device or don't interact. So any general advice for parents who are trying to navigate devices with children? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because my children, and I didn't even know they were doing this. At some point I needed to use my daughter's phone for, you know, something. I was like, can I, I needed to go on YouTube for something. She's like, oh no, I don't have any more time on YouTube today. And I was like, what do you mean? She had installed an app that timed her out. So if she had spent more than, you know, five minutes on a particular app, she just could not access it anymore for the day, which I thought was such an interesting approach. She took a total external control approach. So what's very interesting is that she noticed enough in herself of the vulnerability of her own mind, where it was distracting her from doing homework, that she took action in this manner. So part of it is to talk to your children about how that feels. How does it feel when just, even when they're little, like to get to the point where do you feel like you could go without being on your phone or what does that feel like, et cetera. So having those real conversations and frankly, having them in a very empathetic way. I understand. I understand that pull. Do you have a recommendation? For example, I had a, a psychiatrist on a month or so ago and she had a strong opinion that there was a certain age where kids just should not have a phone. And I think it was like 13, you know, 13 and under, like no phone or 12. I, for, I, I forget the exact, I think it was 13. Do you have an opinion with regards to your work and like attention and developing a peak, uh, you know, a peak mind? Peak is, mind. is there a certain age where it's like, you know what? You really shouldn't have a phone. Yeah. I mean, I would just say it from my personal experience. I haven't studied that at all regarding development and children. So I'm just complete speculation. But yeah, around the time that frontal lobes start developing, which is they really start kicking in in adolescence, that's when you've got a chance at them being able to exert more and more self-control. And that's what it would take. It would take setting up those kind of parameters for themselves to limit in that way. But the other thing is sort of modeling this approach of not being, and I'm, by the way, I say this, but my children would say that I'm on my phone more than they are. So <laughs> we're all a work in, we're all a work in progress. What I wanted to tell you though, is that I think beyond specific guidance regarding technology, because I, I don't think I would have too much to say from my particular expertise on that, just because it's not my area. I would say introducing practices like mindfulness uh, to children is a very useful thing to do. And that I would say there's not only a lot of data on, but even in my own experience, I could speak about that. And it, it comes out in very interesting ways where, you know, saying, oh, you should do this because it's good for you. Well, that as a parent, you know, that never works. But here's how it could be beneficial to you. And we were talking earlier, my daughter is a, is a, was a competitive gymnast and then now a dancer. And for her, it's things like the uncertainty or the pre-performance anxiety or those are those pain points in, the ch in our children's lives where, you know, they may be in anticipation of a of a difficult test or even getting the grade back from a test. Those moments are real and those moments of uncertainty can suck them into this mental time travel 
or it could be social pressures. My, my friend likes me, doesn't like me, whatever social dramas they experience to add this tool into their toolkit while they're younger. Like you can go there. You can go to the catastrophe that might happen or ruminate on something that already occurred, but you could also just stay here right now. Now, you don't have to stay here forever, but practice being here right now. Be okay with the uncertainty without having to go uh, in one direction or another. And so I think about staying here right now, I think the enemy of that, which I, I do think there's consensus on this, is multitasking. I'm curious, can multitasking ever be productive? And I'll use personally, I'll give an example where sometimes I will multitask and I know multitasking and I see it as almost a brain exercise. I know I'm multitasking. I'm going to see if I can do this. Am I just kidding myself? Or, <laughs> uh, okay, multitasking. First of all, let's just break down that term, right? That's that term is not a real term for things that are intentionally demanding and intentionally engaging. We do not multitask. We don't have five flashlights. We have one flashlight. So what we're actually doing is not two intentionally demanding tasks simultaneously but we're task switching. That's the reality of what happens. So when you say I've got these two things to do, they're both, you know, let's say, I don't know, you're gonna write a report and listen to some news story at the same time. What you're gonna do is engage in one, disengage from it, engage in another, disengage from it, and so on. That's what you're actually, that's what your mind is actually doing. It may feel like you're engaging in both simultaneously. The only time we actually engage in two tasks simultaneously is one is when one of them at least has a very low attentional load, like walking and talking. <laughs> if you know how to walk, you're going to be able to walk and talk, not a problem. But as soon as, if I, all of a sudden I put you on the edge of a cliff, you will not be able to walk and talk. You will focus on maneuvering and then you'll talk. So that's the first thing to say is that we are not multitasking. But here's what I want to describe for you is the way I think, I want you to start thinking about what you're doing for your brain. What you're doing to your brain when you do this to yourself. The thing that's really interesting about attention is that it reconfigures the entirety of the way the brain functions. It recalibrates all of the brain's information processing in favor of the thing you're paying attention to, which is why it's so problematic when you get stuck on Instagram instead of being on your, working at your computer. It's like all of a sudden, all the brain's resources are going toward that thing. And I like to use, again, another kind of metaphor for this. It's like, if you think of your brain as like a studio apartment. So when you'd want to do one task, like cook a nice, amazing meal, the entirety of the studio apartment can be used for that purpose, right? You're going to put your vegetables here and your groceries might be here. The entire space is used for that. And that in some sense task, and your brain's going to be reconfigured that way. Now let's say it's time to go to bed. All that stuff's going to be put away. You're going to rearrange the furniture. You're going to be able to have your Murphy bed pulled out, you're going to be able to go to sleep. So that is how the brain functions across multiple tasks. It rearranges all the components in favor of what the goal is and what you're trying to engage in. That happens to be a very attentionally demanding and costly enterprise to reconfigure <laughs> it. So every time you call, call your, on your brain to switch, you're taking that very limited fuel tank of our attentional capacity and you are leaking fuel. You are spending it out. So it may feel like you're exercising your brain that you're doing this. But what I would suggest to you is that you're actually depleting it more rapidly. And so if you do not have to multitask, 
see if you can monotask. Some people would say, I have to have my phone on as part of my job. And I'd say, then no, it's going to take you a beat longer to switch gears. Or if you're working on something and somebody walks in and starts talking to you, let them know. It's going to take me a minute before I can really understand what you're saying because I had to switch gears. So that's what the data suggests is that it's not a great idea to multitask and it's actually not multitasking at all. Okay. I finally get it. I'm, I'm now sold. <laughs> uh, building off of that, something I found, I'm curious your take. So we live in New York City. I walk everywhere. I rarely drive. Uh, and when we are some someplace else and we are driving and I, I usually drive, sometimes I find it very relaxing. And I'm guessing it's one, I'm just paying attention to the road and that's it. I'm not checking my phone. In some ways, it's almost like a mindfulness practice for me. Yeah. Is that possible where we can find mindfulness, we can find attention in just driving if that's really what you're focused on solely? Absolutely. In fact, that's the whole reason we're doing any of this. We're not doing <laughs> this to be excellent breath followers. Nobody cares if you can pay attention to your breath. It's not a goal in and of itself. It's to be able to take it, take that capacity and use it in multiple aspects of your life. Now, that kind of easefulness that you described in driving, oftentimes it's also because there's a sing singular aspect to it. You know, just me on the road. I don't have to worry about a lot of other things. But there's another reason that those kind of moments can actually be very beneficial, which it's kind of like we come full circle from what we started our conversation out with when we talked about mind wandering. You know, mind wandering, I said, is having this quality of spontaneous thought disrupt an ongoing task or activity. It's like there is a task and I'm hijacked away from the task to the past or the future. But the reason you might be hijacked is because of something your mind just does spontaneously, which is this thing called spontaneous thought. So we pump out, our brain is constantly pumping out thoughts. The notion of clearing your mind is frankly complete BS. That is a conscious, awake, healthy mind will always be doing this. So the project of mindfulness or any kind of meditation is not to squash that down, but to redirect when you need to. So spontaneous thought, unconstrained, we, we might call it daydreaming, right? Or going for a leisurely walk and let your mind go wherever it wants. That type of mind wandering, which is not the technical definition I gave earlier, but that kind of conscious free flow of spontaneous thought is very generative. It's mood boosting. It results in positive visioning. And we don't get enough time to do that because we instead will get on our phones, listen to the radio, you know, whatever we're doing. And we can do those things too. Great. But do try to build in some white space where you let the mind roam free. And that is its own form of practice. It's like allowing the floodlight to really be receptive to anything, that, any content that arises. If you had to generalize and, and just pick one thing that everyone should do more of and one thing that everyone should do less of, what would those two things be? The less of, I'd say, is monotask when you can and really do not stack the deck toward multitasking when you can help it. The what you can do more of at the broadest category, I would say, is pay attention to your attention. Check in with this precious brain resource. It is the fuel for your ability to think, feel, connect, and act. And we just don't really pay attention to it. And all these practices, you know, that I described in my book and that we've talked through some of them, they're there to help better support and strengthen this very precious resource. In, in closing, where do you think the field is going? What do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now, two years from now? What's exciting to you in terms of the science and research? 
There's so many exciting things that are happening. One of the things that my lab is doing is really understanding from the brain science. I'm not going to geek out about brain science, but it's understanding what we call brain microstates. So even if you look at the brain over the course of one second of brain activity, there are about 20 distinct states that you can see, which may reflect 20 unique conscious orientations toward your experience. So I think what we're going to do is get more and more granular regarding the nature of the mind that might give us clues into why we have this thought pump and what consciousness is and all that kind of stuff. So that's more on that geeking out in the lab thing. But there's another thing I'm very excited about, which an optimistic view is going to be a year or two years. So it might be much longer than that. But my interest and in kind of my passion and the kind of work I do and the reason I like to have these kind of conversations with um, interesting podcasters like yourself is because of what I want to see is a culture change. What I want people to understand is that the mind, like the body, needs to be exercised in some manner daily for optimum health and wellness. And we now have tools and practices that we can engage in to do that. And what we need to do now, just like physical activities, understand that we can understand that they're good to do, but now we got to get ourselves to start doing them. Amen. We'll close there. Amishi, thank you so much. Thank you.